0: Welcome to The Orchard. I'm so glad you're here today. If you were just listening or engaged in worship there with us, you heard us sing about the goodness of God. My question today starts with this, how do we, you know, we can sing a song about the goodness of God, but have you ever been in a time so dark and so bad that you question goodness and you question where God is? Well, today we are working through Genesis. Genesis. We're back in our Genesis series, and we've come all the way from from creation to the flood, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and we're going to focus for the rest of this series on my favorite person in the Old Testament, Joseph. And Genesis, the author of Genesis, Moses, takes 13 chapters to focus on Joseph, more than Abraham, more than creation, more than any of them. 13 chapters on the life of Joseph. Now, there's something about the life of Joseph that will connect with every single person who's tracking with us online, podcast, or those here in the house. You will find yourself somewhere in Joseph's story. And so for some of you today, I have to say this, today is for you. And the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you in a powerful way. And we say all the time here that we keep the main thing, the main thing, and that's Jesus above all things here at the orchard. And I'll say something else. I'll, go, I'll double down. I, I, I cannot preach good enough to have any effect on you. The Holy Spirit has to show up, speak to your soul. And that's my prayer today, that the Holy Spirit would speak to you, those of you in this position as we're gonna look at, it, and you would see that God has something for you. Joseph goes through many different times and seasons of his life. We're going to dive into Genesis 37, verse 1. But it doesn't start with Joseph. Here, listen to how it starts. It's about his father Jacob. So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan, where his father had lived as a foreigner. Jacob settled where his father was a foreigner. And this is the land that had been promised them for three generations. Jacob settles in the land that Abraham was promised in Genesis 12. Jacob settles in the land that was promised to his father Isaac in Genesis 26. The culmination of generational promise. Jacob is living in the blessing of his father Isaac. Now notice something here. This is I want to, Just one little verse, but I want to stop and pause on this. Jacob settles where his father was a foreigner. The word there is sojourner, which means temporary stay, passing through. Jacob Jacob bought a house where his father rented an Airbnb. Jacob was a permanent settler where his father was a temporary sojourner. His father Isaac, in his faith, had stayed there believing that God would someday give him and his family the land. Isaac could have gotten tired of sojourning. Isaac could have gotten tired of just being temporary. He he could have gone and said, I'm going to go settle somewhere else, but he decided to take God at his word and stand on the promise. And now, who reaps the reward for him standing on faith? His son. Jacob gets to settle down where his father had stood up in faith. Parents, and I'm talking to parents, I'm talking to grandparents, I'm talking to spiritual mothers and fathers. Parents, your children will someday settle in the places where you stand in faith. But it requires us, parents to stand courageously in faith on the promises of God. That's why we need to know God's word. That's why I ask we need to know God's promises. Do you know the promises that God has given you? Do you know where to stand in faith so that your children can settle there? Do you know the promises of God in the Bible? Are you standing for your sake, but also for the sake of those coming, your grandchildren, your children? Perhaps you were raised in a faith household. But the truth is, you're, you're living out your faith in a way that no one else in your family has stood before. So, some of you have not grown up in a faith household, and you are pioneering faith for the first time. Many of us, we, we stand in faith to break generational sin behind us. We sojourn so that our children can settle. The hope is that our children and their children will be able to settle down in faith, in blessing where we have stood. And the question is Do you know the promises that God has for you? Do you know that God wants you to lead your family? Do you know that God intends for you to be the primary spiritual leader in your children's life? God has designed it so that parents, grandparents, spiritual mothers, and fathers would raise and disciple children to walk with God. So are you standing in faith in such a way that your children? we'll be able to settle in those places. Fathers, mothers, pray with your children so they learn how to pray. Pray over your children so that they can hear you and know the promises and what you're praying in their life. Read the Bible in front of your children. Read your Bible with your children so they know the value of it. I remember coming down as a young child, morning after morning, and seeing my mother her four translations of Bible. This was before you had a one phone with a thousand translations. So she had all these books open, all the same verse, and she, 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 she loved the word. I saw that every day growing up. Let your children see you worship. We have families who say, you know, once a month, our child comes into worship with us in this place. Let your child, let your children see you as you say, God, you are worthy over all things. Lead your family forward spiritually because the generational benefits are greater than we could ever imagine. May our sons, may our daughters grow up with character stronger than the culture so they can someday lead their families, so they can someday lead in their church, We want to raise children. Maybe now we talk about this. We don't want to raise our children. We want to raise adults who can stand in faith on their own. Jacob sleeps at night in the blessing of a promise given to his grandfather. Jacob lays his head down at night in the peace of what was promised to his father. Parents, the culture is rising up against the family and our kids. Now, It might be doing so in some new ways, but this is nothing new. The world has always warred, battled against God's design. That's why the Bible says, do not conform to the world. Be in the world, but not of the world. We're to raise our children in the culture of God's kingdom, which primarily happens in the home. Parents, rise up in courage to lead your children so they can stand for God in godless situations. And here's a hard truth. Someone is discipling our children. Someone is teaching our children how to live. Someone is informing our children what to stand for. If it is not us, then we can assume it is the culture that they are immersed in. And parents, we've been given a privilege Grandparents should be given a privilege. Spiritual mothers and fathers should be given a privilege and a responsibility to disciple and lead our children. And perhaps for some of us, it is time to take that mantle back and raise the spiritual temperature of our home. You see, we learn a lot from this one little verse. Jacob is living in the blessing in places where his father stood on the promises. May that be true of us, and may it be true of our orchard children. Verse two, verse two, this is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he tended his father's flocks. Here's what we know, Joseph is a teenager. That tells us a lot. And that's going to inform a lot of what we see happens. And he's a shepherd. Now, Joseph, it, actually, these 13 chapters, the story of Joseph's life, I don't have time to go into all this, it, is, it encapsulates almost the entirety of the book of Genesis. There's so many hyperlinks back to, to creation, back to Abraham, back to the flood, and forward to Jesus' life. That's why we're going to do a deep dive in Joseph to see how we fit into his story and how he fits into ours. From here on out in Genesis, because it ends with Joseph, we'll be focusing on him. Let's see more about him. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah, but Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. He has 10 older brothers, and what does he do? He tattles the daddy. He's 17. He sees them doing things, and he says, Dad, I don't know if you know this, but they're they're doing some things that just shouldn't be done. Now, how do you imagine that goes over with the 10 older brothers when the baby of the family goes and tells Dad what you're doing? It wouldn't go over well, but it gets worse, actually. Verse 3. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. On top of the baby brother giving bad reports... Their own father favors. He favors him. Now, Jacob is just stepping right into a mess that was created in his own life. He was stuck between favoring parents. It happened in Abraham's life. I mean, this is just generationally happening. He's doing Joseph no favors in how he treats him. In fact, it gets worse. One day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph a beautiful robe. Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, Joseph and the Coat of Many Colors, however you've heard it, Joseph has a special, Jacob has a special gift made for Joseph that makes him stand out. Now the typical tunic of this time would have been fairly plain and sleeveless. But Jacob, he gives one to Joseph that is multicolored, that is ornate, and that is long. The unique Hebrew word here means that it reached the palm and the soul. So, this was a long robe. It's one a prince, it's one a ruler would wear because princes and rulers don't roll up their sleeves. The working class needs a sleeveless one. Rulers, they can have long sleeves. The robe gives us some context clues and how Jacob may have viewed Joseph and why he favors him and what it means about Joseph's future. And it's important to know this bit of drama. The robe that Joseph would wear was styled after the rulers was likely Jacob's way of saying, not only do I love this boy, not only is he favored, but I favor him to the extent that he will have the birthright and the blessing. I have chosen Joseph to be the ruler, the future patriarch, to lead the household someday. The other brothers, the rest of the servants, the flocks, They will all answer to him. This multicolored cloak was evidence of daddy's favor, and you can guess how it would have made the brothers feel. Whenever Joseph was around them, you know, peacocking in this nice robe, how would they have felt? Well, due to all that, it says in verse four, his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest. They couldn't say a kind word to him not just about him, to his face. They despised teenage Joseph. Their father's lo- here's why, their father's love and favor and choosing Joseph's leadership over them was a rejection of their leadership. Choosing Joseph in that manner was a rejection of them. They hated Joseph. They loathed him. They despised him. They couldn't say a kind word to him. You can imagine being Joseph, having a father who loves you, and then having 10 brothers who at one point you probably looked up to who just can't stand you and who are constantly shooting venom your way. Surely there's nothing that, could, that Joseph could say to make it worse. I mean, he's a teenager after all. He, he knows, right? Verse 5, one night Joseph had a dream, and then he decides to tell his brothers about it, and they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in a field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly my bundle stood up, and your bundles, brothers, they gathered around and bowed low before mine. His brothers responded, So you think you'll be our king, do you? Because you don't bow to the tribal leader. The tri- you, don't, you don't bow to, to Jacob. Jacob. You know, they're saying, oh, oh you're, what are you going to be, a king? Do you think what, you will actually reign over us? They hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Joseph is having a dream that he will be great, far greater than his brothers. Now, for a 17-year-old, this isn't that hard to imagine. For a 17-year-old, no offense, 17-year-olds, it's not completely out of place when I was 17, I had grand aspirations and amazing dreams. And we you know we all have to admit, we have Joseph in us. We all have dreams. We all have idealism. We've all stepped into these. We all had dreams at some point, and not just when we were young, but even as we continued to grow older, we had dreams. You, you know that dream you had of, of having a spouse and a loving marriage. The dream of having children. The dream of excelling and being successful. The dream of uh, becoming a certain type of person. The dream of making an impact on the world. The the dream of big things. We've all had dreams of what we wanted in life. We all had an idealism like Joseph at some point. We were all dreamers. We still are like Joseph. Joseph continues to dream, but worse, he continues to tell his brothers about it. Verse 9, soon Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers, listen, listen, Guys, guys, you'll never get this next one. I I had another dream. This time, the sun, moon, and the 11 stars bowed low, low before me. He decided he would tell his father as well as his brothers. And his father, Jacob, scolded him. What kind of dream is that? The sun and the the moon being the father and the mother. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come bow down to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. It reminds me of Mary storing away the things of Jesus in her heart. The father, Jacob, he wonders what these dreams had meant. And here's why. If you've been tracking with this in Genesis, back back at the fall, Adam and Eve, when there's the fall, God tells them that someday a son of redemption will come. And this son of redemption will rise up and he will crush the head of this the evil serpent and he will be the one to bring redemption. And this prophecy from, from back then, you can see see it. You can see the hopes of Abraham. You can see the hopes of, of Isaac. They're all wondering, is my son the one? Because this sin is getting out of control. Is this the son of redemption? Let's give him the cloak. This could be the one. Two dreams, and in both dreams, his, fa- his family bowed low before him. Now, if you were one of Joseph's brothers, this would be nauseating. I mean, absolutely not. You can't stand this kid already. He's spoiled. Now the young punk has the audacity to fall asleep and dream that he's better than you. I mean, you know what they would love? They would love to bring Joseph down a few notches. Dad's favoritism has gone to his head. He gets one little robe and now people are bowing down to him. So now Joseph's brothers, they go out and they tend the flocks and they've been gone for a while. And Jacob tells Joseph, hey, it's, go, it's time to go check on them. Verse 14, go and see how your brothers and flocks are getting along and then come back and bring me a report. Now, we know Joseph is good at bringing back honest or bad reports. Jacob puts him in a horrible position here. But Joseph begins to journey and travel to see his brothers. Verse 18, When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him at a distance. And one thing you need to know is, one reason is, because he's wearing the cloak. I mean, he wears it to go see his brothers. He probably wears it everywhere, you know? They see him at a distance. He's wearing the cloak. And as he approached, they made plans to kill him. They've had enough. The robe, the favoritism, the thought that someday he might actually lead the family, And now on top of it, these dreams of bowing down, we have an opportunity here to put a stop to this. Verse 19, here comes the dreamer. You notice they can't even say his name? Here comes that dreamer. Come on, let's kill him. Let's throw him in one of these cisterns after we do. Then we'll tell our father a wild animal has eaten him and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. The brothers want to put Joseph in his place, Once and for all, they want to put him in the grave where no dreams would ever come true. And here's the truth. In killing Joseph, they solve all their present problems with him. The irritation, the robe, all those things are gone. Joseph's out of the picture. But they also do something else. With Joseph out of the picture, it has huge implications for the future because there's no way you can lead a family if you're not alive. Father would have to choose another one of the brothers. Maybe one of, one of, maybe me thinks Reuben or Judah or Levi or they don't know, but, but at least not Joseph. The brothers continue, continue to uh, conspire in verse 21. But when Reuben heard of their scheme, he's the eldest, he came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him. Why should we shed blood? Let's just throw him in the empty cistern here in the wilderness. A cistern being like an empty well, we'll say. Then he'll die without us having to lay a hand on him. Like we don't have to get the blood on our hands. Reuben was secretly planning to come back and rescue Joseph and return him to his father. Reuben has a plan to save Joseph in secret. The brothers, they hear this plan. Well, at least we don't have to kill him. We'll just let him suffer in a hole. And they agree to it. So Joseph arrives. And what's the first thing they do? Verse 23, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. The first thing they do, with great pleasure, I'm sure. They grabbed him, they threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty, and there was no water in it. I want, I want this place right here, that's where I want you to engage your imagination and your emotion. You're Joseph. You're walking up to see your brothers. They don't love you. You know they don't like you. You get that but they grab you. They violently grab you. They take your cloak off. You start yelling. They hold you down. They overpower you. You're pleading and they're laughing. You are helpless. We have to see the the, the violence in this betrayal. If you've ever had hand-to-hand combat with somebody, you know the very personal nature of it. See, Joseph knew they didn't like him but he never thought they'd betray him and turn on him. They threw him in that empty cistern and he would have hit the hard bottom with a thud and groaned. He would have been dazed and hurt physically and emotionally. He has been cast down into this dry cistern. A cistern is a hollowed out hole encircled with rocks to hold water. It's the same Hebrew word used for dungeon in prison Joseph is cast down into a pit Joseph the one who dreamed that he would rise so high his his brothers his mother and father even would bow before him but we see that he is cast down and you can imagine him looking up out the hole in the top and seeing 10 smirking faces they aren't bowed low looking up humbly They are standing tall, looking down mockingly. They are proud. Who's bowing down now? What about those dreams? No coat, no daddy to come rescue you. We'll see what happens with your dreams. The next verse tells us that um, when they did this, uh, when they finished, they worked up quite an appetite. So they sit down there to have a meal. With Joseph taken care of, they're hungry. Do you know what the soundtrack was to that meal? The Bible tells us. In Genesis 42, the brothers talk about this. They say, we saw saw his anguish and he pleaded for his life. We didn't listen. They're eating lunch next to a pit while he's down in there pleading and begging them for help. Please don't do this. Please. Levi, Reuben, anyone. Brothers, please. I promise I will not tell Father. Just please don't. Just don't do this. Have you ever been on the edge of a life-changing diagnosis or a decision or a moment and you're just pleading not this? Anything. We find Joseph going from a life of of big dreams to reality of broken dreams. Joseph had a charmed life before that one moment, before that one thing happened. He was young. He was idealistic. He was full of promise. He was full of dreams. He was wrapped in daddy's favor. It's fun to be full of hope and, I, and promise and idealism. And you know we, we, you know we follow in Joseph's footsteps. Every time there's a fresh start, we feel Joseph's idealism and hope. I mean, remember the last time you had that idealism in your life? You remember what it felt like to be newlywed? And yeah, maybe you went to premarital counseling and someone said... The person you're going to marry, the person you love the most, will make you the most angry. And you thought, no, (laughs) not us. (laughs) We're different. (laughs) You remember when you had children, and they were just a newborn, and you just stared at them for hours before they could talk back? (laughs) May you remember that job opportunity? That was so exciting. So, I mean, just so, so new. And the boss was so cool. You remember life before your vices truly took root in your life? You remember the freedom that you once enjoyed? You see, we've all dreamed like Joseph at some point. We all follow in the footsteps of the, a dreamer like him. But Joseph was betrayed by those closest to him. And here's what I want us to see. His entire former life was gone in an instant. In one decision, everything he had had and experienced and known was gone. His future, gone. It's hard to be what you dreamed when life puts you in a pit. And how do you get back to the life you once dreamed of and it all seems so far gone. And you've probably had seasons like this. Well, maybe you thought things were on track, on a certain track, but then through the decision of somebody else or your own decisions or circumstances beyond your control, you found yourself cast into a pit. And maybe it was somebody else who hurt you. And they wounded you, betrayed you, made decisions that broke the relationship and broke your heart. And in doing so, they dashed your dreams. Maybe it was your own bad decisions that took your life down there. Maybe it was circumstances beyond your control, the economy, anything, diagnosis. But like Joseph, you were in the pit and you, you know the pit. You know what yours is. You see, I know what this feels like. I, I told you some of uh, my story last week. In my youth, I was much like Joseph, and this is why I, uh, I just, I love him so much. You see, I was, I was like him, an idealist, so young and confident. My mom would say, man, when you were a kid, you never lacked confidence to a fault. I was idealistic. I had big dreams. I was certain that God had destined me for something great. I mean, I was 17, that was me. I, I, I know no one else has really changed the world, but I think that I'm the one I, I really, I was thinking about this, I had this deep belief that God, I wore a special robe of favor from God, that God favored me. I took that special robe and those big dreams to Atlanta as a youth pastor at this, a church smaller than this one. It was a lot of fun. And this church, I it had a young and dynamic pastor And we had this belief that God was going to grow the church. You've heard me say some of this. And grow it did. It grew from a few hundred to a thousand. That was fun. And then from a thousand to 5,000. That was wild. And then from 5,000 over 10,000. And that was just bananas. As a young man, everything I had hoped would happen and more was happening. A whirlwind of salvations and baptisms and travel and conferences, consulting, you name it. I was being mentored by the pastor going on traveling with trips with him. I was getting to speak on the big stage and talking with him about someday leading the church. (laughs) It was better than I had dreamed. And that was saying something. The Joseph's dreams I'd had as a kid were coming true. The robe was as colorful as ever. And then as I told you last week, it was at that time where my then wife had an affair. And in the wake of all of that, all the success And then that, trying to maintain a ministry and preach and lead and salvage my marriage and salvage my heart, in the end became obvious I could not sustain my own heart. I could not sustain the ministry. I could not sustain the marriage. Something had to give, and the first thing I did was resign from the church. My first calling would always be my spouse over the ministry, so let the ministry go. Go. I was at the pinnacle of what I thought ministry would look like. I was living a dream with greater promises ahead of me. Bigger promises than I could imagine. But on that day, I'll never forget, I, I resigned and I pulled out of the parking lot and I left the church. <laughs> and, and, and at that moment, all the dreams I had ever had as a kid were just dead. The dream of marriage, that died. Dreams of ministry, died soon after, I sold everything I owned. I uh, sold the house. And I remember that there's that, always that time where you're in the house before it's sold. I remember sitting on the floor. I had no furniture. Planned it just perfectly, I guess. Just sitting there on the floor of an empty house. And I remember so clearly looking at my life and wondering what was left for me. Like Joseph, I was in a pit. And here's what I, here I sat there. It sunk in. I couldn't think of one dream left. Worth pursuing. I couldn't think of one dream to to get off the floor and go after. I was cast down. I felt like that special robe of God's favor had been stripped. I was in the pit, and all that I wanted out of life was gone. It was loss. It was dark. It was empty. It was a pit. When were you last in a dark pit like this or like Joseph? You know your pit. You know it's different every situation. Perhaps you're in one today even. Have life circumstances cast you down? Do you find yourself in a deep hole that you never saw coming? I mean, relationally cast aside, maybe financially and over your head, physically diagnosed or or, or trapped, spiritually deserted, mentally terrified Sometimes it's circumstances of another person, their decisions that put us there. But other times we do it to ourselves. Psalm 77 verse 15 says, there are those people, and we are those people, who dig a pit on their own and hollow it out and then fall into it. Oftentimes, the worst pits we end up in life are the ones that we've dug for ourselves. These are hard seasons and painful and lonely valleys. What do you do in the pit? What do you do? What do you cling on to? And I just want to say in Joseph's life, there's one sentence, one sentence that continually is repeated throughout his story. It, wherever he goes, there's a sentence that follows him. One sentence that changed everything from his lowest and all that life takes him through. And it is simply this: it says, God was with Joseph. This is repeated through Joseph's life. And Orchard, it needs to be repeated in your life today. Because some of you are in some places and you need to know that God is with you. In your pain, in your loss, in your diagnosis, in the despair, in the anxiety, in the sickness, in the depression, (laughs) God is with you. God's not abandoning you. God is with you. He's not left you. God is with you. In the darkest valley, God is with you. In the deepest hole, God is with you. In the pit of despair, God is with you. God has promises for us to stand on. And many of them are for these dark times because, listen, God never promised to keep us out of the pit. He never promised to keep life from getting hard. He just promised to be with us in it. In fact, listen to these words of Jesus in John 16, Jesus says, hear me so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. What does Jesus say we're gonna have in life? Trials and sorrows. Life is gonna happen. But take heart, I have overcome the world. What about this? Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the deepest valley, the deepest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. And today some of you need to remember or know or to realize that God is with you. He's with you in the valley. He's with you in the pit. God is with you in the anxiety. God is with you in the depression. He's with you in the aftermath. He's with you in the loss. He's with you in the divorce. He's with you in the loss. He's with you in all of these things. And even when you can't see him working, even when you can't see him present, he is with you. He's working something in you. He's working something for you. And there's another truth of the pit. The pit is preparation for future promise. And this is a lesson that that I, I wouldn't have known or even cared about back then when I was in it Um, because it was just so, it's just, the pit is so painful. But the pit is preparation for future promise. And in the pit, no even if we dug it ourselves or if life happened to us, whatever, those seasons when we're in the pit, God's building something in you, what you think is breaking you, he's building in you to break through for the future. And we're going to see this in Joseph's life. You need to see it in your life, that what is, when you're in the God is working in you and building in you in preparation for what's in the future. And guess what? The pit is never permanent. A pit is never permanent. It feels like it, doesn't it? Oh, the pain is so pervasive, but it's never permanent. Psalm 40 verses 2. Listen to this, those of you who are down today. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me and he turned and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire, out of the junk that life puts on you, out of the sin that we put on ourselves. He lifts me out of that. He set my feet on solid ground. He steadied me as I walked. He, He holds you while you get your legs under you because you're gonna keep walking beyond that he doesn't leave you in the pit and the pit's never permanent so for those of you here today there are those of you today in the pit there are those of you right now who have children, prodigals, friends, family who are in it God is with you and the pit is not permanent and I want to ask you to do something courageous today whether you're tuning in with us or whether you're here in the building if you today, if you are someone, I want to pray a special prayer over you, those of you who would say, hi, this is me. If you are someone who says, I am in a pit, I am in a dark valley, I have lost, I have had the diagnosis, I have had the I, I get it, I'm there. I want to ask you to stand up because I want to pray a special prayer of blessing over you. So if you're here today, would you stand if you find yourself in a pit? Place your hands over your heart. And if you're close to one of these people, would you reach out toward them? Would you put a hand on them or would you pray toward them? Father God Almighty, I pray for the hurting hearts in this place, for those in dark valleys, for those in brokenness, for those in hopelessness. Father, I pray that you would give comfort and I pray that your spirit would reveal that you are fully present with your daughter right now you're there with your son you're there that you are present and this isn't permanent and father i pray that you would give them strength i pray lord in the name of jesus this is our prayer as a church we pray you lift them from the pit of despair and set their feet on solid ground and help them get their feet under them god we ask this in the name of jesus and everyone said amen you may be seated As we go into communion today and hold the elements of Jesus' sacrifice, realizing that Jesus went to the pit for us, that he went to the lowest of lows so he could take you up into the highest of highs. And so today as we sing this song, I want you to engage, knowing that Jesus has been there. And here's the other thing. For those of you in hardship and in a pit, find Jesus in this situation. If, if you're in a pit and you're looking down, all is dark. But if you look up, you see light. Find him wherever you are in this situation. Turn to Jesus. Find him. Ask him to reveal himself. Let's worship.